Evidence in Motion is excited to be back to hands-on learning for the first in-person Align conference in more than two years. If you've attended in the past, you know that the content is awesome. And if you haven't, this is a great year to add it to your calendar. The event features an all-star lineup of speakers and hands-on lab options that will allow you to build your own track based on what you want to learn. Align will be held in Dallas, Texas, August 26th through the 28th. JOSPT Insights podcast listeners get an exclusive 10% discount when you use the code JOSPTPODCAST10. That's JOSPTPODCAST10. Register soon. Early bird pricing ends July 1. Learn more at alignconference.com. That's alignconference.com. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today we're talking about how to take advantage of the complex processes and mechanisms going on in our body to help manage pain. My guest today has devoted her career to understanding why we hurt and why sometimes pain doesn't go away. She's a clinical pain neuroscientist at the University of South Australia, and I'm going to let our guest introduce herself and her work today. Dr. Tasha Stanton, thank you for joining me on JOSPT Insights today. Cheers. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Now, Tash, you've got a very interesting CV. How do you introduce yourself? I introduce myself as a clinical pain neuroscientist, but with a a background training in physiotherapy. And I actually think that, you know, that background training and going through so many various different things, it's actually really good because it sort of gives you different perspectives of things. And how does that training, how does that blend of clinical training, science training, research training help you approach the work that you're doing now? Yeah, I think it sort of gives you a different filter, I suppose, to look at a problem. So I guess what I loved about my clinical training as a physiotherapist and and working clinically was, you know, I saw real life hard problems. I saw and treated people that I didn't know how to help. And it, I just, it spurred, I suppose, in me so many questions on things that I had taken to be truths and really made me question them and think, oh, is that correct? Like, I feel like I'm treating chronic pain, like acute pain that's just lasted a long time. This doesn't seem right. And I, I guess I suppose that background training, that really helped me formulate questions not only that were interesting, I suppose, to a clinical environment, but potentially had impact for that clinical environment. And then I guess I, I dipped my toes in the water into research by doing a master's degree and did this actually in spinal biomechanics, because at the time it was up the craze of transverse abdominis and let's do this. And I was just really interested. And I suppose that initial training probably really primed me for how I've approached the rest of my career. And then I got wonderful training in epidemiology and sort of clinical trials type aspects in my PhD. And and then, of course, I, I, you know, got my my, uh, interest peaked by the world of pain science. And to me, that's, I suppose, where everything really has come together because it's, you know, asking kind of crazy questions when we can, 
but sort of developing then the methods to ask them in a robust manner. You've got this infectious curiosity. I think it comes through when every time I hear you speak, it comes through and it's so refreshing. And I think people listening to you, that idea of seeing the clinical challenge and trying to think of ways to solve that problem will resonate whether, you know, the person listening to us is a clinician or a patient or a researcher. And this is the beauty of when we're doing research well, I think clinical research well, we do blend different perspectives and different elements. How do you keep the faith and how do you keep that infectious curiosity going when science gets difficult, you know, the experiment doesn't work or you reach the, you get to the clinical dead end and you think, oh, actually that's not going to work in practice. How do you kind of keep that passion going? This is going to sound a bit weird, (laughs) but I think it's actually sometimes really quite important not to be too tied to one specific outcome. I try my best to frame the way that I approach something as curiosity. I want to know, like, what does happen when we do this? And then regardless of the answer, my goal is to try to find the truth as best I can behind that. And so some of the experiments we do, for example, we do everything we can to prove our, our hypothesis wrong. We try to choose control conditions that say, ah, but it might've been this. Let's do this and see, does that effect still survive? And I guess when you approach it like that, you become less tied to the actual results and you become more tied to doing your very best to ask and test competing hypotheses so that what you're putting out there and what you're recommending is really something that that has something to it. I mean, I I won't lie. Sometimes you, you really think something's so cool and you're like, yes, yes, yes. And then it doesn't work. And I will feel disappointed, but it is, I guess, that that knowledge, I suppose, deep within my gut that what I'm doing is trying to put forward, you know, the best science that we can do. And that if it doesn't work, if it showed it didn't have any effect, that is as important of a result. And I think that will really resonate with our clinician community who are listening today, because I think the worst thing that we can, the, the worst thing is when we read research, because I think we all get that Research is important. It's an important aspect of evidence-based practice, but it's really frustrating when you read something and you think, yeah, but that was either never going to apply in my clinical practice. It's a, you know, it's compared to something that's completely unreasonable. I suppose, I mean, one of the trials that I was involved in during my PhD, um, and this was led by Luciana Macedo, who's now out of McMaster University, but it was looking at people with chronic back pain and it was comparing two forms of exercise. So it was looking at motor control exercise and graded activity, and it found absolutely nothing. Like those, those lines were literally overlapping. But many people would argue, well, why would you compare two exercise interventions? Like we, we usually think that they're they're quite similar, but We didn't have evidence of that. And for a clinician that's trying to make the decision, you actually do need that trial. You do summarize your research as aiming to understand why people have pain and why sometimes that pain doesn't go away. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I'm intrigued by what modulates our experiences of pain. And that probably speaks to some of the experimental studies that we do where, you know, we're getting people into the lab, we're controlling as many things as we can. And then we're seeing if we just change one thing, and hopefully it's just one thing, what happens? As an example, it was a study looking at what influence, you know, our past social experiences have on pain. And we had people come in and they were people who had self-reported that they had had negative social interactions or they had been bullied in the past. 
And we got them to recount that experience. Just tell us what happened, the impact it had on their life. And then we had them put their hand in ice cold water. So they did a cold presser task. And merely recounting that episode of negative social interaction of bullying, that significantly increased their pain during that um, cold pressure tax, more so than when we had them do a very stressful cognitive task. So when we're still putting them under pressure, we're kind of making them feel a bit anxious. So it suggests that actually there's really something there in terms of these social interactions and how they influence our pain experience. And we actually have some experimental work to say, this isn't just me being wishy-washy and saying what you think matters to how you how much pain you feel. This is here's the experimental evidence where we've controlled every single thing that we can and we see an effect. And then I suppose the the shift of why sometimes pain doesn't go away. I, th- I suppose what I'm really intrigued by is do many of the things that we see in experimental pain or in acute pain conditions, some of the systems that we see in place. Are they still functioning? Are they still working in people that have chronic pain? And if we can find some of those systems that can modulate pain that still seem to be intact and and, and working as they normally did, can we use them to our advantage to help people then be able to engage a bit better in other evidence-based interventions such as exercise, such as education? Oftentimes when we look at evidence-based interventions for people who have chronic pain, It's like asking someone who is drowning to hold up something extra, like asking someone to fit exercise in their day when they're barely getting through that day. That's really hard. We're not ever looking for one solution. We're looking for, you know, a variety of strategies that we can use to our advantage and tailor to that individual. It sounds like a bit like what you're talking about there, Tash, is kind of hacking the brain, really. Yeah, exactly. We sort of try to hijack <laughs> different systems and use them for good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, using them for good is is a nice way to put it, I think. And it's also interesting when you talk about the the social construct and the way that we experience different aspects of our lives, not necessarily how we experience pain. Because I think many of us, or probably all of us, are you know thinking much more broadly about pain now and not simply thinking of nociception, but thinking about how all of the other influences or how all of the other aspects of our lives influence pain or interact with pain. You're talking about other experiences in one's life that were perhaps negative, but we wouldn't necessarily associate with physical pain necessarily. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we're such complex beings, like there are so many aspects to us. There's, there's links between, you know, negative affect, anxiety, things like that, and our immune system and upregulation of inflammation. Like there we're so complex that I think it starts to make more sense why I think some of these broader social constructs and environments can actually have quite a drastic influence. It's hard to know, uh, is this, like you said before, is this a bit wishy-washy and is this sort of intuition that I have really holding water? Can I really sort of stand up in front of my peers and say that this actually is really important and this is an important thing to consider in my clinical assessment or within my clinical consultation. But it sounds like what you're saying is that yes, and we're now getting the neuroscience research to back that up. We don't have good evidence that X, Y, Z is the cause for someone's pain. But if they are, if manipulating them changes that experience or changes even 
someone's outlook, which then can also change the experience of pain. That's really important to know. You're doing a lot of work in osteoarthritis at the moment. So let's talk about osteoarthritis. And I think increasingly we're recognizing and understanding that osteoarthritis is a disease, not simply a worn out joint. What happens to the brains of people who have osteoarthritis? Actually, we see so many body-wide changes, which include the brain, which include, you know, very various different systems in the body. When I think about osteoarthritis, all I ever heard was wear and tear and bone on bone. And it was really viewed as this, you know, degenerative process that ultimately will result in surgery. And, and I guess what the evidence suggests now is there is a growing body of evidence that we have body-wide changes in inflammation. So you have low level systemic changes in inflammation that mean that osteoarthritis is more a process that manifests in the joints and surrounding tissues. And so when you have sort of this uh, environment of increased levels of inflammation, well, right away, that means that our nociceptive system, our pain system is upregulated. The knee itself, so in terms of knee osteoarthritis, is represented in the brain. So there's shifts in the way that it is represented that we think have ramifications for movement. We see changes in the dynamic function of the pain system. So for example, our descending modulatory systems uh, from the brain to the spinal cord that can either inhibit and make things less sensitive or facilitate and make it more sensitive. Both of them seem to be haywire. So inhibition is not working as well as it should and you get facilitation working too well. So the breaks of the system are no longer working as they normally should. What are the concrete implications for clinicians who are working with people with osteoarthritis, Tash? A hope for people, no matter how severe osteoarthritis is. So for instance, there's really good clinical evidence that even people that are on you know, a wait list for surgery, they will respond to exercise in terms of reductions in pain and increases in function. And that's important. And there's evidence to suggest that that is not at the detriment to the joint. Another aspect that I think is really concrete and relevant for people is that your cartilage is dynamic, which means that when we do things such as increasing activities slowly but surely, there are positive adaptations in cartilage. It means that when we're thinking about osteoarthritis, we are not just thinking about that joint. We have to consider lifestyle factors, which that's part of clinical practice guidelines, but I think what it, it makes us or compels us to do is probably work a little bit more closely with dietitians. So we talked about hacking the brain. How do we, how do we help patients to kind of get into that hacking space of using the, what we know about pain neuroscience to our advantage in terms of managing osteoarthritis and particularly managing pain? Because that's often the primary complaint or the primary symptom that people have. I do think actually a really powerful way is through different cognitive cues. <laughs> so it's it's through the words we use, the way that we approach the situation. I actually think that's really relevant because it is a, a really ingrained thing in people that it's a wear and tear disease. And it might be that for a, a patient coming in, you might not need to shift that aspect of it. They might be happy to exercise, even though they believe that this is a wear and tear disease. But for many, the, the words that we use and the way that they speak about me, the way that they're talking about it to others, I mean, that has influences on what people believe about prognosis. And 
prognosis and beliefs about prognosis can be self-fulfilling. So I think one of the things that is quite important to do is to remember the words we use. They have enormous influence on our brain, on experiences of pain, and we're not aware that this is happening. We're not consciously aware that if I say my knee is crumbly and it's, it's, it's stuffed, when we look back at some of the experimental science behind this, it does suggest that this does matter. So it changes, you know, the way that we sample information. So different, you know, information changes how long things are in our conscious awareness. What someone tells us about how resilient or robust our body is drastically changes our pain experience. So if they're not sure something's safe, the exact same stimulus will hurt more. The available evidence for danger and safety appears to be important to the experience of pain. Another area I suppose that I'm quite interested in, in terms of hacking the brain, so to speak, is has been some of our work with, with mediated reality, where changing the way that the, the, the body looks to someone reduces their pain. And we've done a bit of follow-up work with this, and we show that people, they, they tend to have this analgesic window where anywhere from you know, two to, to 15 or 20 minutes, they have reductions in their knee pain. And so I'm actually just leading some work right now where we're just about to, to begin in a, uh, next month that we're trying to see that, can we use that analgesic window and get people to exercise in it? and actually be able to have them exercise more with less pain, feeling better. Tash, how do you get that analgesic window? Because I presume you're doing something cognitively to then get a window within which you're then going to do some exercise therapy. Yeah, so we use um, our, our mediated reality system and we do what we term a stretch illusion of the knee, or for some people, it's a different illusion. We sort of figure out what, what seems to be working for them. And we repeat this illusion using mediated reality numerous times. And then we basically, we can test out with people how long that window is for them. But what we'll be doing in the study is basically blinding people to what's occurring, getting them to undergo a condition or not, and then walking. And then seeing how far they walk for, track their pain as they're walking, um, and see if we have any differences in their movement-evoked pain, but also differences in their engagement and enjoyment of that activity. That sounds really fascinating. And it leads me to my next question, which is what are the most exciting developments for you that you're seeing in the pain neuroscience world? I'm a bit of a nerd. So I am very excited about the fact that we're starting to see improvements in technology, which mean that it's bringing things like virtual reality and different things as a possibility to the clinic. And now I don't think that these, that virtual reality or mediated reality will is a be all end all. It's it's not the silver bullet. But I do think that what it allows us to do is explore things in different ways with people that can be compelling for them. So for instance, I'm sorry, but exercise and many physiotherapy exercises, they're boring. They're really, really boring. And I get that because I've hurt myself before. I've had stuff where I've gone to a physio and I've got them and I'm really good at doing them for a bit. And then I just get too bored. And I just wonder if we have this technology where we can get people, you know, engaged in something else and they're doing the exercises almost without knowing, or they're getting really personalized feedback so that they can see real-time improvements. To me, that has the potential to, to really improve our prescription of things that we know are beneficial. Like we don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel. If we know certain things are important, we just need to make 
them, <laughs> their uptake and their the enjoyment of doing those better and more compelling. Sometimes with our these technologies that we're using, we can explore different presentations that we have. So I've recently just done some work with Dan Harvey. He does so many cool VR stuff. We uh, did a case study with, it was a patient who had complex regional pain syndrome. And anytime, you know, anything came near his hand or even just talking about it, watching his wife cut something, he just had this enormous evoked pain in his, in his hand. And basically we exposed him in terms of kind of a, a virtual reality graded exposure to different things coming towards or interacting with his hand. And so we were, first of all, able to show what we've termed kind of visually evoked pain, which we haven't necessarily seen before because there's no touch at all. It's literally just visually evoked pain. But we also were able to show that in this VR environment, we could reduce the sensitivity to that visually evoked pain. And we didn't see translation to the real world, which suggests that you would actually have to do steps to translate that and take on graded exposure in the real world. But it was just such a cool experience because for him, it also gave him, uh, the patient, the sense that, wow, there, there are potentially things that I can do that might impact this. And that is huge. Why does that have the brain response that it does? The short answer is we don't entirely know. But what we see from other studies is sort of the link between having vision of our own body and then a change in pain, it does seem to be underpinned by changes in functional connectivity between different areas of the brain. So in some of the work that was done by Patrick Haggard and Matthew Luongo, they did neuroimaging, so fMRI of the brain, Well, people were viewing their body part and then getting zapped or not viewing their body part and, and getting zapped with a laser. And what their analysis showed is that areas of your brain termed the visual body network, so the areas that typically activate when we see our own body, there was increased functional connectivity between those areas and then the areas of brain that typically activate in response to a nociceptive input. So what they hypothesized is that when we have vision of our own body, it actually results in activation of these different connections between areas of a brain that allow sensory modulation. So it allows input from one sensory source, in, in which case this is vision of the body, to modulate information from another, so nociception. So their hypothesis is that it might actually be changing that processing of nociceptive input, which could be relevant because, for example, in people with neoarthritis, we, of course, we do still think that there is nociceptive input contributing to that experience of pain. I mean, they, they do, for very many examples, they do have things going on in the joint that very well may result in a nociceptive signal. We know less about why changes in, in body size might influence the pain experience. There's been some recent cool work down out of Canada, actually really cool stuff with illusions and, and looking at fMRI. So that has a, a bit of potential. I mean, it's just cool to think like the amount of things, the changes that occur just when you see your body change in size, it's incredible. Like you have shifts in the representation of that body part in the primary somatosensory cortex. Immediately you have a shift there. So if you make your arm look longer, you have an enhanced size of a representation in the primary somatosensory cortex. And you see the same thing in the motor cortex. You get this change in representation relevant to those muscle groups. 
some of the work that Siobhan Chabrun has been leading has shown that in people with neoarthritis, if you give them transcranial direct current stimulation to the motor cortex with the aim of increasing excitability of the motor cortex before they do exercise, they do better with that exercise. Can we potentially use some of these things to induce a plastic state, which then might make them more amenable or responsive to different interventions? Yeah, it's really cool. And it's also heartening in a sense too, in that our brains are plastic and changeable throughout our lives rather than, you know, I think we're really aware that the brain changes so much when we're younger and and we're all, we all get that kids have this very developing, very plastic brain. And I think some of it, we sort of get stuck in this thinking pattern of once I get over a certain age, then that's it. I'm hardwired and none of that is changeable. But I think what you're saying is that everything can change potentially throughout our whole lifespan. And how cool is that? Yeah, exactly. That idea of bioplasticity or changeability in in all of our systems, I think is, is a really powerful and important message. It's finding that appropriate stimulus for change that's needed and trying to get the dose right so that it's sort of right in the area where it's not too much, it's not too little, it's just enough to give that that system a push. We're good at thinking about that in a musculoskeletal sense, but we haven't necessarily translated it to how we think about the brain. Yeah, absolutely. And I I guess I would argue that there probably are different pushes or stimuli, stimuli so, so to speak, for different systems. Like for one instance, um, in people with neosteoarthritis, cartilage is a slow adapter. So I think it's one of those things that it, we probably need to give things more time. Whereas other contributors possibly to a pain experience will need less time. Tash, you've given us so much to think about today. As we wrap up, what are three resources that you would point listeners to? I, I, I do love Noi Group as a site for, and whichever I'm sure many, many would know about, but with the idea of accessible resources for people and patients to, to take a look at. And as part of that, we're, we've actually just released um, a book on osteoarthritis. So it's basically an explain pain handbook in the context of osteoarthritis. And it's, it's one that we're testing in a clinical trial at the moment. I have really loved pain chats is kind of looking at, yeah, what sort of, what, what are, what are people's stories? And I love Bronnie Lennox's blog. She, I think, brings such clinical nuance and just common sense and relevance to discussions behind pain and how clinically we interact. Dr. Tasha Stanton, thank you for joining me on JOSPT Insights and sharing all of these resources, this knowledge, and most of all, your infectious enthusiasm. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT and Facebook, we're JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.